Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Voino Robich, fuck you, fucker, is a fiery and urgent documentary portrait of downtown New York City artist, writer, photographer, and activist David Voino Robich. Yeah. As New York City became an epicenter of the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, Voino Robich yeah. weaponized his work and waged a war against the establishment's indifference to the plague until his death in 1992 at the age of 37. It's a breathtaking film. It is a remarkable document uh, to a wonderful artist. And uh, you think about the possibilities had he survived if he were alive today. Uh, in the film, we see people like Fran Lebowitz, Gracie Manchin, Peter Hewer, and so many others. The film is a terrific documentary film. And we're joined today by the director, Chris McKim. Chris, welcome to Film School Radio. God, I'm so sorry. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about what inspired you to do this. It started in July 2017. We were, at the time, we were six months into the Trump administration, and I was uh, coincidentally trying to figure out what my next project would be, you know, and I was trying to find something that would make me feel better about what I was doing in the world at that moment, um, just because I think, you know, I was as stressed out as a lot of people were. And, you know, I, I came back across David's work, which I had been, you know, slightly familiar with. I knew the essays and, and some of the art, but I, I, when I came back across his work at that time, I realized so much of it, the writing and the art spoke to things that were happening in the moment in 2017. And there was a real opportunity to kind, and that there was also so much story to David's life. So there were these two things. And it was a year before the Whitney retrospective in, in 2018. So I had reached out to, to PPOW Gallery, which was David's last gallery. And they managed the the estate, and um, you know I talked to them and um, sort of got them on board, and then I reached out to to Randy and Fenton at World of Wonder, who I have a long um, relationship with over the last twenty years, and that was really the start of the project. You know, with once the estate was on board, that really opened up the world of all of David's archive, which was kept at Fails Library, and that's when it really really started to to sort of come to life and come together because I was aware that there were some audio tapes of David in in the library. I thought there might be some, there was some video, some some stuff from his performance art. And I knew all the writing was there, all of his journals and essays. So going into the project, I was really inspired by the film I'm Not Your Negro about James Baldwin, which was such a, a wonderful mix of the writing voiced by Samuel L. Jackson and archive of, of James Baldwin in his own voice. And, you know, when, as I started this project and realized that there was so much amazing audio from David, the tape journals and, you know, him really pouring out his heart on top of things like the art and, and interviews and, and everything else that I realized that we could really sort of, there was an opportunity to bring David to life while addressing, you know, these, these issues and stuff. Let's talk about his work. What def what is sort of defined his work? I think the era, the time he, in which he was putting together his work, helped shape him. Obviously, but how would you define David's work? Well, I mean, you know, he's a multimedia artist. He was in a band in the early '80s. Of course, he initially wanted to be a poet and a writer, and so there are all these essays. And you know, he in the '80s he became as well known for his art. Sort of in the mid '80s, he was in you know in the Whitney Biennial and that stuff. But it was really 
the writing and his confrontation with the politics around AIDS, um, the AIDS crisis that I think really put him in the forefront. Because to that point, he had always been political, even in, in the earliest stages of his work, because he was he was a self-taught art- artist. And so even in the earliest days, he was addressing what he came to call America's one tribe nation mentality in our pre-invented existence. And as the AIDS crisis ravaged on and, and he had more personal experience with it through P- Peter Hujar, um, who was his mentor and, and close friend. Um, and sort of helping to nurse him through through the last months of his life, all of the sort of rage and, and his attention to the power structure um, in America and various issues really got focused on the AIDS crisis and helped kind of amplify his work. You know, he sort of became known as a sort of quote unquote AIDS artist in a lot of ways. What he was really talking to was the power structures, which is why his work I think is still so relevant today. And and the fact that his work came of age during a pandemic, and then this film's coincidentally, unexpectedly um, came out during, you know, COVID really made his, I think, though his work resonate even more than I expected um, when we were making the film, because we were finishing it. uh, March 2020 is when we were like doing the final mix and stuff, because we were preparing it for release when everything shut down. Having lived through that era and and having been become familiar with a lot of artists who came out of New York during that period of time who were finding their voice in, in that period of time, I have to say he's one of the few that I was not familiar with that I've come to know, obviously, through your film. Um, he's not as well known as a Warhol or Herring or Basquiat. There's a lot of, for me, I, and maybe I'm sort of an outlier in this, but um is there a, do you do you would you say that's an affair of of the artists we know from that period of time? He's one of the not as well known. Is that? Uh, yeah, no, I think I think that's certainly true. He's not as as widely known. I think to to um, a certain uh, queer sort of section of the world, and even in 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 within that, he's not as well known as he could be. But you know, I, I, there are pockets um, of people, and I think it's a combination of. I don't think the name helped, which is a sad thing to say, but even in his life, you see it and you don't, you know, I don't, I don't think it connects and you don't, uh, people don't necessarily know how to say his name. Um, and so that, you know, that's just, a, I think one of those things that they complicated it. And also his art is so complicated. I, again, he was a multimedia artist. So there's photographs and, you know, big sort of paintings and, and collage pieces in the writing. But, you know, for the most part, it was hard. It's it's not brandable art. You know, there's definitely iconic images within his art that people know. The Falling Buffalo, which was, you know, the, the U2 cover and um, the, the sewn mouth photo of him that Andrea Sturzing took in, in the Rimbos and stuff. You know, I think people recognize this work, but don't necessarily connect it to David unless they know David. And unlike Herring, Keith Herring and, and Robert Maplethorpe, whose work was really identifiable just at a glance. Certainly Keith Herring's and, you know, and very closely as well, I think Robert Maplethorpe or David's, even in the Whitney retrospective, when you're looking at the, at the big sort of massive pieces, there, there's so many things going on, so many elements, so many bits of collage, whether it's photos he's sewn into the painting or layers of stuff that you really have to stand there and and pick it apart to, to kind of take it all in. And that's just, 
I think hard to, 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 to get people to, you know, relate to not relate to, but I think it's, it's, it's hard to brand, um, which wasn't something he was trying to do, of course, but like in the course of, um, you know, your legacy, sometimes it, it can be tricky. And it was a challenge in making the film, the fact that it was all so complicated, um, which I think in part led to sort of the collage aspect of the film, because if we were to just put up some of these pieces you know, you couldn't, you'd have to look at it for 20 minutes and would not have made like a a very dynamic film. Um, But because of the way that his visual language developed and he would use so many different themes and ideas and and images throughout the course of his work, that picking it apart in the way that we did sort of was true to the way he would kind of reuse images and and sort of further develop ideas and such. Definitely piqued my, my interest in seeing more of his work watching the film. Definitely. I love the device of using his own words or giving us context for his life's work, his life, and how he came from some very difficult circumstances in his life. I'm just going to editorialize here a little bit. His work is so bold and so, I wouldn't say uncompromising, but there's a, there's a, there's a, righteous anger in some of his work. There's a, there's a, there's an embracing of his, of his sexuality. And I, I just, I, I'm, I was just taken by watching what I saw in the film, what I see. And to your point, the spectrum of the work, you know, obviously he evolves over time in, in the, in the, in his life. And, but his embrace of kind of the uh, embrace of his queerness and embracing and, and basically making this political slash slash personal statement in his life is really very, very moving in this film. It really, the film just, it's remarkable, actually, truly, your ability to bring all these different elements in it, into it. The film has garnered a tremendous amount of attention and, and notoriety over, since it's been released. Surprise you? Yes and no. I, you know, I think people are reacting to David, the, you know, the amount of David in the film and, and him, his personal journey, like making the film and going through his audios, my focus focus was, you know, really trying to find things that spoke to anyone who was finding their way in the world. In his personal journey, you know, the, his struggle to kind of find meaning in his life and, and trust in his instincts and all of that stuff, as well as listen for elements of the politics that did sound like that they could sort of be ripped from the headlines. And I think that's really what people have responded to. And I would say that, um, I mean, any attention is, is always surprising. And the fact that, you know, it's David is a complicated artist and it's a, it's a film with a lot of things in it that I would think might scare people off, including the title. Um, and the fact that it hasn't is, is, has been really exciting, you know, to, to see David's work sort of connect with, well, both knew him and his work and learned more about him and the way that people who have, you know, were unaware of David's work have been sort of inspired by him. And another artist that I was not familiar with and seeing in the film, Peter Hujar, uh, his work looks fantastic. It's a remarkable, uh, he's a photographer. Um, a little bit about him, about Peter and about the relationship that he shared with David. Even in Peter's lifetime, he was not particularly well known. It wasn't until, um, which, you know, Fran Leibowitz kind of talks about in the film when she, you know, she was close friends with him and the art world at the time could all fit in one restaurant. Right. Um, and it was quite small. And, you know, the people that knew Peter 
was not a widely known artist. And after his death, David made a point of trying to get his um, work into some of the major museums in, in New York. Despite David's understanding and, and rage at these institutions for being so like whitewashed and, and homophobic and the, the way that, you know, the institutions have made art and, and elevated art that, that was from a select group of people. And despite that, David understood the importance of breaking into those institutions. Um, and so it was really important to him to, to try to get Peter, you know, I think it was the Met can't recall right now, but, you know, got, got his work in and that sort of helped get Peter's work out there. And, and since his death, he's become such a, you know, it's such an iconic and influential photographer, um, which is, you know, also great, you know, unfortunate that it had to happen after his yeah. death, but that's so often the way in art. I'm going to make a bold statement myself in terms of that period of time in New York City. I'll, I'll say, I'll call it the early 80s to the early part of the 90s, that, that sort of when when New York was seen as uh, in decay, falling apart, the, the not only the quantity of artists who emerged during that period of time, not only in the art world, but in music and in film, it almost feels like our American renaissance, or we will look back on this period of time in terms of what I just described, how many great artists came out of that period of time. And it's hard not to attribute that to an opportunity in in this major metropolitan area where you could be seen and you could be heard and you could be um a, there was a degree of appreciation or openness to a, to appreciate the art that was being created it's in a remarkable period of time it's endlessly fascinating um what's your take on that period of time I think a lot of people came to the city um David included well he spent a lot of time there growing up but like uh, you know, came to the city in the late 70s and early 80s when it would, you know, New York was really uh, still falling apart and, and and still like looked down on by the rest of the country. And, and you know, they were creating and, and could find spaces to create and live at a time when it was affordable. And then the city took notice around that and, and developed around that and, and had its own little renaissance. And um for better or worse, it's the '80s and you know, Wall Street and money pouring in and 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 all of that stuff, and that also contributed, I think, to you know, as they talk about in the film, David and Peter talk about in the film, it was like the first time there were really art stars to that degree. You know, there had been Warhol before that, and but like in the '80s, you know, that it just the the whole industry completely changed. You know, I, I don't know that they would all. Um, look fondly on that. <laughs> David certainly didn't. Yeah, but it just, it, it seemed to be this remarkable platform. I mean, and I think it, some of it is the, the ability to kind of connect with one another as much as it was the art that was being produced. And it became in some ways its own echo chamber. Now, once, and as David mentions many times in the in the film his suspicion of fame suspicion suspicion of the you know the the uh the east side coming into the art scene and and becoming part i don't know if that's the exact right way to put it but the upper class of new york becoming more and more a part of the success of these artists was something that brought suspicion to him he seemed definitely not interested in fame but in the art itself and I think that's another thing about the film that is so it's so compelling. It's, it's such, a, such draws you so in to to his story, 
is his uh, purity of purpose. Once he decided that this is what he wanted to do, he seemed hell-bent to do it. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, no, certainly. I mean, David, uh, hell-bent is, is a good description for everything David did. You know, like he threw himself into to everything in, in ways, both positive and negative. But, you know, he was certainly determined in the fact that I mean, just looking at his childhood and just to survive that and to end up on the streets and and still find a way to make art and grow and, and sort of become this, you know, big self-taught artist, I think. It's hard to say what kind of fame he would have gotten in his lifetime had there not been the AIDS crisis at the same time. And I think, unfortunately, brought the, the gay community further out of the shadows. Um, I mean, it was fortunate because they came together to push the government to, to open up testing and, and find better treatments and all of that stuff. But, you know, we've, we've lost all those people. So it's, it's really, um, you know, it's hard to, to kind of wrap your head around. The impact on of gay culture during this period of time is staggering in terms of the impact it had on so many artists, so many people, so many people's perception of what art was, what art could be, not only as, as, as what we, traditionally think of it as art, but also on, on a statement, on, on an understanding, on a political statement as well as anything else. And it's, yeah, it's, it all comes through in his work. It's just, it's really, thank you. <laughs> thank you for introducing me to, to him on, at a level I, I, uh, I truly appreciate. It really, really resonates. Well, thank you, Chris McKim. Uh, for your work. Thank you. And again, congratulations on all the top 10 lists that this film is appearing on. Uh, All the the accolades, well-deserved. The film, again, is Voynarovich. We've been talking with the director of the film, Chris McKim. Thank you so very much for your time. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Radio.